to do a really good job somewhere only means that folks are getting fed and loved and the community is welcoming and inviting and you know um, paying the bills most of the time <laughs> <laughs>
she being seen as um, other, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Now it's very acceptable, but you know, when she was growing up in Oklahoma in the 20s and 30s, it was a very different world. Mm -hmm. um, and you find that in many of our elders, that they love who they are, but many of them um, lost their language or had it taken away in boarding school. So um, the wonderful thing is we're in a new generation of people who are using their traditions for education and ways of being that are life-giving and who are within the church. Um, even though sometimes the church has been the problem for Native people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the questions I wanted to just ask to, to ask you to speak to a little bit. Um, as you know, I served as a priest in South Dakota for a number of years and so had an experience with um, one strand of kind of native inherited Christianity um, where, just as you say, you know, there were multiple generations of Lakota clergy um, and uh, who it, it was just interesting to see Christianity inhabited by um, a Lakota culture. And I was always struck by the, the way in which my friends back east here <clears throat> were surprised that that was possible, that people imagined that because of the kind of destructive role that the Christian religion played in some of the, all of the Western expansion, Manifest mm -hmm. Destiny, all the things that we did as a country to Native people, that how could it possibly be that there is an authentic Native Christianity? And I certainly witnessed that firsthand, but I, wouldn't, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just saying a word about how that played out for you. I think one of the things that the missions, the best of the missions was that people were attended to and fed and cared for and loved, people who were on the margins. For Cherokee people, the, um, when we were still in North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, before removal, it was a missionary who fought and brought the case all the way to the Supreme Court on behalf of the Cherokee. So that in many times, folks were um, standing with, not always. I mean, many um, institutions um, and churches and well-meaning missionaries tried to erase the traditions from the people. And others were really good at um, blending, and it's, I wouldn't say blending, but making it authentic and helping people be authentic with who they were. Um, it says in our prayer book, by the way, um, from the earliest prayer book, it should be in the language of the people. Right. You know? So there were missionaries who were doing translations right. and, and using traditional songs and things to be translated and into um, hymns but not everybody and so it was there were some people that are beloved for example in north and south dakota mm -hmm. some missionaries mm -hmm. 100 years on yeah. and yet there are others who they just won't talk about i mean yeah. the interesting thing in our native communities which doesn't happen in um, more normative communities is if somebody has done something terrible they generally just aren't spoken about spoken about um, and folks will honor those who really were um, and those times when, you know, there were really loving and caring leadership that were sent. I mean, and most of the people who were coming to all of our different reservations were from New England, um, the East Coast. Mm -hmm. So um, there are also a lot of n uh, Native communities here on the East Coast that have also been, in some ways, have been 
Christian, for example, the um, Onondaga Chapel in outside of Syracuse has a set of, well, they have a set of Queen Anne silver from 1700. Um, wow. So they were worshiping and they had a little chapel from that long. Now their silver is actually sitting in St. Peter's in Albany. Okay. Um, that's a whole nother story. But so many of the tribes on the East Coast had encountered really early on and were, you know, Christianized. Mm -hmm. And um, before we became a country, there were a lot looser ways of the way people were. Mm -hmm. Not everywhere, but many places mm -hmm. were a lot more flexible. Mm -hmm. French tended to be more compassionate than the English, just um, in terms of their missionaries. But it was a little bit of everything, mm -hmm. so. I'm thinking of one of the stories that um, Bishop Creighton Robertson used to tell about his grandparents' encounter with missionaries. And he used to tell this story about um, this kind of meeting, you know, intense kind of circle at which these missionaries were had made contact, there were friendly sort of feelings, and it was like the night where <laughs> the missionaries were going to tell kind of what they were there for. And so they, they began to tell the story of the incarnation, the story of Jesus as they knew it. And the way Bishop Creighton would tell it is that then his grandfather and others sort of sat around with some reflective silence, as is fitting, <laughs> and then said, this is, we're so glad you've come to tell us this news. We know of the Great Father and we know of the Spirit. We're very, uh, very pleased and interested, intrigued to know that he has had a son. <laughs> And I was like, whoa! Like, I've just never, you know, that for me that was a story. That was a story told in South Dakota that was a was a kind of wonderful way of showing how a uh, one kind of traditional Native spirituality could receive the gospel in this way. That for me, as a as a person um, interacting with the, the gospel, it like it beautifully kind of flips and contextualizes that story in the well, right way. And I think that most of our traditions have. Um, a, an awareness of a um, a creator, so that we know the creator that that is not something foreign, and we understand the spirit. So most of our native communities that worship as Christians, no matter what um, um, denomination they might have been missionized by, are very Jesus centric because it's really relational. Um, we are very relational by mm. who we are, mm. and so that connection to mm. the child, the son, those kinds of things mm. makes a whole lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, and both elders and children are very much um, respected mm. and seen as blessings. So it would make sense in most communities. The gospel wasn't a strange story. Mm. The um, context in which it was delivered then might have been oppressive yeah. um, and you know the culture that didn't it was really an ignorance on the part of most of the missionaries or the people encountering native mm -hmm. traditions mm -hmm. but a lot of it um, that was more the clash of culture than mm -hmm. it was the mm -hmm. clash of spirit and reality mm -hmm. of yeah. the faith yeah. so which of course is a huge part of the history of the tradition in which the there is a kind of real beating heart of a of a very precious very lively story that has meaning and useful um implications for life and <laughs> there's also 
an institution with social and political motivations that in fact are not closely connected to that story if, right. if we're honest right. you know and and the, the fact that they sort of move in lockstep um can contribute to a story such as i just told about bishop creighton kind of receiving a sense of the spiritual gospel and all of the horrible kinds of mm-hmm. things that that happened in the name of um yeah cultural um what expansion on the part mm-hmm. of sort of white you know american federal american whatever it was um, but this is, I think this really, what's interesting about this, thinking about this in the context of what happened with Native Christianity, this, I think this to me gets to what is confusing and complex about being part of the church today. Is you say, well, okay, um, there, yes, there is, there does seem to be something really real in here. And there is all of this inherited baggage. And if you wish to... Um, yeah, just that, that question of how do we, and now it's funny as your role now, you're really a kind of, um, you're a rebuilder. Mm-hmm. Is that maybe a good way to describe your job? Yeah. You know, in this diocese, you're sort of looking around, helping all of these different churches try to, try to figure out how to navigate our inheritance and our future. And this seems to me to be in some ways a similar question. So I don't know if you, if there's some stuff that you're seeing as you're well, one of the one of the changes that's happened in this diocese, and not since I've gotten here, but has been ongoing, mm-hmm. as it has been across the rest of the church for a very long time, which is we had these churches and institutions that had full time clergy and that you know were had enough money to do all these things, and all of a sudden that's not the case anymore, and so we have all sorts of churches that can only hire clergy for half time, or you know, mm-hmm. and. They judge it on a, like, well, must be a failure on our part. Although Rita spent time in South Dakota, nobody's getting, none of the churches have full-time clergy. That's not been the case forever. In many places, that's not been the case forever. So it's what we have experienced here has been a luxury over, you know, in the Diocese of Massachusetts. But in fact, it's actually just participating in the fullness of the church. And I continue to say to people, we are a church of small churches. We're not, you know, a church really of cathedrals and these huge places. Mm-hmm. There's small town, village mm-hmm. churches that respond to the local cultural needs. Mm-hmm. And um, the more we try to be like some other institution, mm-hmm. the danger, more dangerous it gets. So helping people just generally accept who they are mm-hmm. Um, and love them for that mm-hmm. has is a very important part of mm-hmm. basically any ministry, mm-hmm. but particularly here, mm-hmm. where folks are always in competition. I mean, it you know the stage is big, and there are lots of um, big personalities and those kinds of things. And yet, to do a really good job somewhere only means that folks are getting fed and loved, and the community is welcoming and inviting and you know um, paying the bills most of the time yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a nice kind of call to a a kind of simplicity of witness that does anyway. that does and feel it's just sitting around with folks and saying well what do you really need to be church you know and i try to remind folks that the clergy are not the church you know, and we're the ones who thank move God. around. Thank, <laughs> really, thank goodness. We're the ones who move around. We're the, you know, 
unreliable ones, actually. And the community that's planted are really the church and finding how to nurture them and give them and empower them to take the roles mm -hmm. that they may have left to the clergy because many clergy made them feel like they were inept or not able to do those things. And that's part of what we're also doing. So. And I'm hoping you're going to have some questions soon, Meredith, but it's yeah. just, this is making me think of so many things. So, you know, in this, and by the way, it's snowing. That's what I was gesturing yeah. at. It's like really amazing, like, wow, it's really snowing. But, um, you know, this context of the chaplaincy is interesting because it isn't a parish. Mm -hmm. um, it really is. Um, it's, it's our chance as a, a sort of, uh, what are we? What are we? Um, an outpost of the church to work with um, young people as they are thinking about what it means to then be in this leadership place. And we're thinking a lot about uh, what, how, how we can live together in such a way that the students who are going through the chaplaincy now understand, are you listening, <laughs> that, that the church is in their hands. It is in their hands. And that, that's a, that is the, maybe the best news. Mm. <laughs> One of the most wonderful things that happened on our travels um, in Wilmington, um, a young man was um, came up to me and showed me his prayer book. And Andy Lau had been, I had confirmed him as a student in the chaplaincy at William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. There's my signature on the date, and there he was, um, and he's a pediatric, do I mean, doctor with specialty. I mean, he's an amazing human being, but there he was standing and talking and remembering that confirmation all those years ago, and it brought tears to my eyes to realize that, and I started my ministry um, after ordination as a college chaplain at Hopkins, mm -hmm. and how important this period of people's lives are mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. it's the first time you really get to make the decisions about who you are and who you want to be and how you're going to be in the world mm -hmm. um, and those are really hard decisions to make mm -hmm. and not things that are lightly done even though we may not act on them when we're in our 20s mm -hmm. it is where all the foundational work happens and so it's a real struggle it's a constant mm -hmm. struggle and so um, I loved being with college students and always have because it's really a um, very robust time not just for all the educational possibilities but also the decision-making of how do I want to be in the world and how what do I need to change not necessarily I mean and how do I am I going to Am I going to use people or I'm going to help people grow? I mean, all those kinds of questions are part of what we're doing in chaplaincy. So seeing Andy really um, made a wonderful moment, even though looking back, that was a really hard time in my own life. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we were working together so that I, so that I could still um, empower him to be fully who he was. So... This conversation is reminding me, um, so I was in Life Together um, for the last few years, which is a fellowship program for young adults um, through the Episcopal Church, and during, during both years, we had a couple of conversations with Bishop Allen about, you know, sort of these questions about what's the future of young people in young adult ministry in the Episcopal Church and in the Diocese of Massachusetts, 
and during one of those conversations, um, a fellow fellow of mine um, said something that really stuck with me, which is that it shouldn't. This conversation shouldn't be about um, how to get young people into the church and how to get young people going to church, but how the church can support young people in living the church's mission in the world. Um, right. Which it sounds like that's sort of one of the things I, I hear you pulling out about, like what's the role of clergy? Um, it's not to be the church. So I guess it's. I'm. I'm wondering. I'm curious um, if you have any sort of like moments of really seeing people embody the church or bearing witness to the gospel. Um, in ways that are not necessarily connected to like the institution of the church or not, you know, limited to, yeah, being participating in that particular way. Well, when I was a chaplain at Hopkins, and so I part of my job was at the cathedral, um, which was adjacent to the campus, and um, we had lots of discussions about um, during Lent about um, what it meant to you know, prepare for Easter emotionally and those kinds of things. And mm, the group one year decided that they were going to give up chocolate. I mean, because they were very heavily addicted to chocolate. I mean, their little <laughs> their little um, phrase was, you know, the Canterbury Club passed the chocolate or something like that. And so they gave it up for all of Lent. And so we're having um, the great vigil of Easter. The bishop is there, la-di-da. And so the plates are coming up you know they've gathered the offering and in the plates are two chocolate bunnies because <laughs> they decided they need to make their first offering of what they had given up but you know even though they were going to have chocolate now they were going to make an offering and it's very for me it was always very symbolic of that willingness to mm -hmm. to engage with um being really honest about you know what it means to sacrifice even mm -hmm. though it's just a chocolate bunny right. obviously the guys who were counting the money on monday were like what is this <laughs> but for me it meant that they understood mm -hmm. their own place mm -hmm. about how they were mm -hmm. going to go about mm -hmm. thinking about things mm -hmm. so that they were going to give up in order to make somebody else's life better and they mm -hmm. consistently were doing that even when people weren't noticing mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um finding ways to give up space so other people could use it and those kinds mm -hmm. of things and working with um, inner city kids. And in those days, it's not probably any better now, um, but there are a lot of really difficult situations in the city of Baltimore. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids, you know, without, and they were always r the first to volunteer before anybody else in the church volunteered. And they all didn't go to church all the time, but mm -hmm. if there was something to sign up for to volunteer, they were always ready to to work in the hardest places. Mm -hmm. And that's always struck me. Um, I think one of the things that on the other side infuriates me with the church is that mm -hmm. we don't know what to do with teenagers and young adults sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's sort of like, ooh, they're an alien species. Right. When in fact, um, they're you know critical to, don't worry about it. Um, they are the life of the church. I mean, mm -hmm. we're not, you know, separate generations right. and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I always found that um, hospitality and feeding were critical to every mm -hmm. ministry, and mm -hmm. we often don't do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have gone more places as a bishop and said, you know, you're right next door to this campus. Do you know that nobody gets any food Sunday night? Mm -hmm. 
with just if you were willing to cook right. on Sunday mm -hmm. evenings, right. just to pay attention to the fact that a lot of these kids don't have the money to go out right. and buy a full meal. They mm -hmm. might right. take, you know, they may have a breakfast or a brunch, right. but a lot of even schools have mm -hmm. cut out feeding anybody mm -hmm. on Sundays or weekends, mm -hmm. you know. So, and there are lots of people who don't have the five dollars to go buy a sandwich somewhere. Right. So. Mm -hmm. It's true. And people don't think about young adults being in need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. We tend to not think about them as being in need. Mm -hmm. And um, we tend to not think about them as being people with something to offer. Absolutely. You know, that's definitely been my experience in the church is watching, you know, you'll watch a really gifted, inspired, with it young person trying to kind of make their way in the church. And, um, and this we, we've heard, you, you know, I'm part of the Young Adult Task Force in the diocese, mm -hmm. did all these interviews and over and over you hear these stories of young people in parishes feeling just um, overlooked, mm -hmm. invisible, mm -hmm. um, made into tokens. Oh, good, you're the young person. Mm -hmm. Now you can do the young people stuff. Not the, any of the real stuff of the parish, but like maybe some, some young thing over here. You know, all these things are... We hear about this all the time. We hear this story over and over. And again, for, for I think Meredith and I, it's been interesting to start to live into this chaplaincy to say, well, oh, we've got something different here. Mm -hmm. This is a different, um, a different model with some different possibilities. And it's only, it's finite, right? It's only, we know that they're, you know, it's while people are students. Um, uh, and it's, but it's, yeah, it's been fun to be, to be surrounded by so many interesting young people well and it's it's surprising because i think a, a lot of the narrative that i hear and that i i think even believed a little bit um for a while is sort of like oh young people like aren't as involved in the church because it's like they're not they're not into or we are not into the sort of like scripture and like liturgy and sort of like boring aspects of it and so there's this tendency to like you know how can we like make like translate church to make it interesting for young people or how can we like do this in a different way that young people like um so like the hip hop prayer book is like a really like cringy version of you know example of that right yeah everyone's like no 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 um, well, yeah, it's even something... scarier when people start doing like the folk masses or whatever right, like, right which right, is right. Right, exactly. I mean I did go to camp but okay yeah right know, that's not necessary either. yeah <laughs> yeah so it's all of these sort of like attempts to sort of like reframe the church in a way that is somehow more accessible so or supposed to be more accessible to young mm. people mm. and what I've been really Really struck by here is that there is like a real hunger to know and understand and grapple with like the texts like everything the, you know the stuff the basics, that we, is right. actually here in our tradition yeah like um there the number of people in this ministry who are just like deeply deeply interested in understanding what the bible says like just mm -hmm at a basic level you know like that's that's something real there that i don't think i expected to encounter like at this level yeah, yeah we have a um we have some students who have the idea to run a greek bible study because we have several you know students in the classics department and at various kind of levels and um how what fun that's been and i'm not a you know i i did a little greek in seminary and it's not not credible at all but it's been amazing to kind of be in this room is the point being led Absolutely. by this group of young adults who are really interested in what does the text actually say? What does it actually say? Um, 
And then, yeah, we have a number of people who are trying to figure out how to read the Bible, the entire Bible in a year, because they're curious, and they're, like, you know, coming up with plans yeah. to read it, and this is all, this is, I mean, it's wonderful, it's just, it's wonderful energy. But we also live in a world where that various pieces of scripture have been pulled out to either bash people, mm. or, you know, or to exclude people for all sorts of reasons, totally out of context, not necessarily what's being said or mm-hmm. with any sort of sensitivity mm-hmm. and to be able to use those skills mm-hmm. to be able to say wait a second let me really look at this yeah. and in a way that yeah. um well and it's really insight. simple too the, the the students who are reading the bible in an intentional way are finding a lot more uh richness in the liturgy and gatherings that we have mm-hmm. simple as that you know i mean it's so obvious but it's worth it's worth just, I, I'm finding myself encouraged and challenged to say, to question my own scripture reading practices. You know, I've been conditioned as an Episcopal priest to, to, to lean heavily on the lectionary and the daily office when I'm really, really, you know, in a good <laughs> disciplined place. But that's also not the same as this kind of sustained re- approach to it um, that is separate from liturgical practice, but it sort of says, I need to actually devote time to the study of the whole text. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm finding myself kind of energized mm-hmm. to read right, that. Right, and there's there's something in it for me also about like having, sort of developing the discipline to both engage with the text and allow yourself to sort of like questions mm-hmm. like that brings you into deeper relationship with it and you sort of like mm-hmm. taking on this role of being actively contributing to ongoing interpretation of scripture. Like that, that I think puts you in a different position in relation to the things that we've inherited as part of this tradition. Um, Very nice. Nice. Just sort of like, thank you. Well, there's also the thing of, you know, the lectionary, the question is always what's been left out. Mm. Yes. You know, and, and, you know, in studying educational processes, Mm. you know, the, the null curriculum is as important or more important than, you know, the intentional curriculum. Mm. And why are we leaving certain things out and those kinds of things? And then taking that, I mean, um, Steve Charleston, who's at one point, um, who's Choctaw and a bishop, but he was the dean at EDS, uh, has often talked about the Old Testament of Native people as being the traditional stories. So Mm -hmm. the the tribal stories of our people are like the tribal stories in the Jewish Testaments and the Jewish um, Bible, and to figure out how those things are similar, interact. I had a couple of years that I taught at Villanova, and um, just looking at creation stories, the two creation stories Mm -hmm. in Genesis, and talking about native traditional um, creation Mm -hmm. stories, Mm -hmm. and how their similarities and differences in the culture within that Mm -hmm. um, is really very powerful mm-hmm. but a lot of times we leave something a lot of big chunks out mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that sometimes are more give you more insight mm-hmm. and particularly when you're reading a whole story or a whole mm-hmm. um, chapter mm-hmm. rather than um, mm-hmm. just yeah. a little tiny sn- snippet of something mm-hmm. any final final words thoughts things left unsaid I'm glad to be here. So. Yeah, we're really excited <laughs> to have you and to hear your sermon later tonight. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's go have some. Let's go have some church. Let's go step into that inherited <laughs> tradition. All right. <laughs>
Thank you for joining us for this episode of You Never Walk Alone, Voices from the Episcopal Chaplaincy at Harvard. This podcast is created, edited, and produced by myself and the Reverend Rita Powell. Our theme song was written and produced by Aidan Stoddard. If you'd like to learn more about the chaplaincy, who we are, and what we do, you can head to our website, harvardepiscopalians.org, or follow us on Instagram, at harvardepiscopalians. This podcast is one of many ministries that is made possible by the generous support of our community and extended network of alums. If you'd like to support us, you can head to harvardepiscopalians.org slash contribute. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time on You Never Walk Alone.